Hello, this is Ken Root, and welcome to another edition of Better Than Nothing. This time we're going to have two episodes, one this week with a very interesting lady, and next week with her two farming partners, her husband and brother-in-law. I followed a lot of new crops and breeds of livestock and even manufactured products in my years as a farm broadcaster. I admire those who have the foresight and drive to take their vision and try to turn it into reality. The overall success rate, however, has been low. First, an entrepreneur must build a base of production and then a means of distribution to an audience that will buy the product that's being made. That's where most break down. The end product is unable to find a true use. It doesn't really matter that some enterprises fail, however, because there's always this dream of success. That dream is alive for a new agricultural product called industrial hemp. Hemp grows well in the plains. You might recognize it as ditchweed. It was a common crop before the development of nylon and other synthetic fibers. It has oil that comes from the seed and fiber from the mature plant. The reputation of hemp changed drastically after its last legal growth during World War II. It became marijuana. Marijuana was illegal. Growers were breaking the law and dealers were getting kids hooked on a gateway drug to a lifetime of addiction. Regardless of your view of marijuana, it has been legalized now in many states. Some bold people ask why hemp could not again be grown as an industrial crop. So here's what happened. A few years ago, there was a very effective popular and political movement that gave hemp a new chance at respectability. Actor Woody Harrelson, a Kentucky native, began to sing its praises. Actually, Woody can't sing, but he had a friend in the federal government by the name of Mitch McConnell, Senator Mitch McConnell, the top Republican in the U.S. Senate. The senator made sure the last farm bill had a provision allowing pilot programs for growing hemp as long as the THC level of the harvested crop was below a threshold. There were four states that initially gave it a try, Kentucky, Colorado, Washington, and Kansas. In Kansas, the first planting had to be for research, and that's where we meet our guest for this podcast. Melissa Nelson is an agricultural researcher and farmer from Great Bend, Kansas. I traveled to the very traditional corn, soybean, and wheat farm and met Melissa, her husband Aaron Baldwin, and his brother Richard Baldwin. Their farm shop is a big metal building with an office and lab area along one side. As I got out of my 197,000-mile van, several Great Pyrenees dogs met me first, followed by the cats, and then this tall lady named Melissa. Wearing gym shorts and a t-shirt, capped by a seed hat and sunglasses, she introduced herself and said, hop in the truck and let's go look at a field of hemp. I climbed into the big black vehicle and we sped off with my recorder going. Melissa, it's been dry out here, but we're driving by a, a field that you've bailed up into big round bales and it appears you had a lot of tonnage come off of there, so you must add enough moisture to make something of a harvest this year. 
so when I do my weather reports for my clients, um, as of August 31st, we have had 10 and a half inches of rain this growing season. So that is from uh, May 1st to April or August 31st. That's below normal, isn't it? Yes. Uh, typically between May 1st and August 31st, we're looking at 16.35 inches of rain. You, you walk and talk this every day, don't you? Uh, I love numbers. Numbers really make sense to me. Uh, they make me happy. And so, yes, that's, that's how I operate. And I love what I do, so it's really easy to remember. Uh-oh, we're pulling into some dark green that's taller than the weeds. Not saying there's any weeds in it, but there's weeds alongside the road. So is this your field hemp? Yes, so this is a field that we're actually growing seed stock as well. So this is a dual purpose. We'll come in with the combine, we'll cut the seed stock off the top, and then we will harvest the fiber below it. And as you can see, there are weeds on the edges. One of the unique things about hemp is the canopy cover that it provides, and it can really choke out some of those aggressive weed species. Uh, but this just happens to be on the edge of the field where it's, it's not as thick. When we got to the field, Melissa jumped out and waded through a swath of palmer amaranth to get to the hemp. Okay, now this stuff's about what? We're five, going, five, we're going six. A little bit farther. Okay. Should have worn my boots. <clears throat> got them in the truck. All right. So now we're closer to our. You know, you must trust strange men. I'm standing in a field with you about 15 miles from anybody else. Oh, God. I just wanted to say that, but uh, wow, this right. is something. Yeah, so when we go to our pure fiber field, those plants were about 14 feet tall. Because this is seed stock, we don't want it that tall because you don't want extra material running through your combine if you don't need to when you're harvesting that grain. So we're very happy with this height of being about seven to nine feet once you get to the center of it. Right. Now the top of this, I don't see any seed. Yeah, so there's seed in here. You see these little oh, sacks yeah, right yeah. here? That's all gonna be seed production. And so those will all brown as they mature. So you can see this like one little seed here that's starting mm. to mature. When that whole head gets to looking like that, that's when you're gonna wanna come in and harvest. So one thing that's pretty interesting is the leaves will still be green as these heads are brown. And that's one of the challenges of harvesting because the plant is so green, but if you wait until the plant senesces down, then you have shattered your seed. Yeah, I can see the problem with that. Combines hate green grass and green oh, leaves. You should have been here two days ago and you could have sat in the combine and it rumbles, let me tell you. I haven't asked this yet, but how do you separate yourself from everybody who calls this marijuana? Uh, when we first started, there was a lot of people that called us weed farmers and all the things, and we just would correct them and have slowly made it very clear that we're not interested. You know, it's not good or bad. We are just industrial hemp farmers with a focus on fiber and grain, not marijuana farmers. How big is this field? Um, there is 60 acres of hemp, so it's a half of a pivot. Funny that you do background work on ag chemicals because you need a few in here. 
Yes, um, I would love, and there are products out there that would work for grasses and hemp because hemp is considered a broadleaf, grass is obviously a grass, and so products like Clethodim or Select, you know, those would all be highly effective, but they're not labeled for hemp, so we can't utilize that tool right now. So that's one of the big focuses on our farm, and what we teach our farmers is utilizing cover crops, um, talking about the critical uh, timing of planting, and then in terms of depth, planting density, and really getting that crop off to a good start so you can avoid some of these weeds. What are the weeds that are in here that are the tallest? Palmer amaranth, so pigweeds, that's what. So you've got palmer here, which yes. is the worst of the worst. It is the worst of the worst. Um, we really see this as a challenge in all crops, even on ones that we can spray. Uh, it just It's a challenge right now. Now, don't you have to get herbicides cleared state by state yes. to use them on a crop? Yes, So, but the, that's done at the EPA level and generally by these big companies, you know, when they're, they're approving crops, we could apply for a section 24C, which is a, an application to use these on a state by state basis. And I'm looking at doing that for some of the different products in 2023. Quite a bit of the audio was recorded in Melissa's truck on gravel roads with washboard crescendos, you'll be able to hear. Melissa, we're driving down a uh, slightly graveled road here, corn on one side, and what's the situation with the profitability of this hemp at this early stage in your production? Are you still pivoting with it and hoping for the future, or are you able to say that it's delivering anything to the bottom line? Uh, it's absolutely delivering to the bottom line. So for our farmers that we contract, it's important that they're making money because if they're not making money, they're not going to convert those acres over to hemp. Um, so in terms of farmers, yes, they are making money on this. Uh, if they've got good seed, if they've got a place to sell it, which our farmers do. Um, in terms of the processing facility, uh, the first year we were not profitable, and as we are nine months into our second year, we are turning a profit. So, does that give you a, a potential dotted line straight ahead or up at an angle? How would you put the future? Uh, a steep angle. Um, we strongly believe that processing facilities should have regional locations. So think about elevators and how you see one every 15 miles. We would love to see a processing facility every 50 to 100 miles because transportation is the most inefficient cost for farmers. And so if we can really reduce that and provide more processing across the state and across the Midwest, that's really going to help him thrive. We just rolled into a field with a big center pivot, so I take it you're pulling water that is available from this Arkansas River bottom area here. How is this done this year? What are you? What are we looking at here? Uh, we actually do the um, Agalala aquifer. Yes, thank you. And so that's what all our pivots are ran under. In Kansas, they allow you so many acre inches per field. Uh, you've got a meter on every pivot, and if you go over, they will fine you heavily and then cut your water for the next year. So very important that you understand your numbers, very important that you're following the meter, and you're not overwatering your field. What has been here to our left? So this is fiber that has not been laid down yet. 
So the combine has came in and taken off the top for seed oh, production. Yeah. And we'll go to the farm next and I'll show you the bin where all of that's at. And so Aaron will be here shortly with our side sickle mower and he's going to lay that down, which you can see in front of you. Mm -hmm. And then we'll come back on the, with a rake, uh, probably on Wednesday or Thursday, rake these into windrows and get it prepped for baling. So those just look like three foot tall green sticks. That's, that's exactly what they look like. And I'll swing you around and you can see that this particularly this particular variety did a great job on weed control uh, because there's there's nothing in there besides him so it shaded it out exactly it closed that canopy uh, we did the correct planting density and it really shaded out and was competitive with all the other weeds that fiber stick right there is that what really made hemp what it was in the golden era of rope and all the other things that hemp could produce? Absolutely. So back in World War II when they had hemp for victory uh, and every farm was allowed or was required to grow hemp for the war effort, Kansas was actually one of the largest producers in the United States. So what you're looking at there is the fiber that was made for uniforms, shoes, um, like shoe strings, all of that stuff, rope, and then the inside, I don't believe they used the herd back in that time. Your new processing facility, does it take this stick and peel it to where it turns it into inside and outside products, or is that too simple? Nope, that's it in a nutshell. You want a job? You got it figured out. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we appreciate our workers. Uh, they're an integral part to our team. We could not do this without them, so we want to make sure they feel valued within our company. I'll even get you some company shirts. We'll get you set up with all the swag. You'll be good to go. Backwards on this, though, let's say that you've got a bare field that came out of um, wheat the previous year. Uh, what's your planting time and what are your expectations? And uh, you have dry land or irrigated. Uh, what would a farmer need to consider before he would agree to either contract this with you or grow it on his own? Yeah, so one of the values that we add to our growers is we provide the seed to them because there's a lot of bad seed salesmen out there. There's a lot of different varieties that aren't going to be really advantageous for your area. So any farmer that wants to grow with us, we'll provide the seed. We tell, sell it to them at cost. We provide a contract. We talk about the nutrient requirements and what they need to have a successful season. And we do that all up front. So there shouldn't be any surprises throughout the season for that farmer. What's the planting date and what type of tillage equipment and planting equipment do you need to get it in, into the ground? everything that you already have. So if you've got a drill, you can use a drill for your controlled spill. Uh, if you've got um, a planter, we've used planting before. We've done it on 30 inch rows, 15 inch rows, and then we obviously drill on seven and a half. Um, so just run of the mill equipment that you already have on your farm. Now I noticed, Melissa, this really doesn't show very much in the way of weeds out in here and you didn't pull them. So how did you accomplish that? planting timing. So the seed varieties that we use actually germinate at 42 degrees. Um, so you can plant very early. We tell farmers to really put this in the ground, set it, and forget it. And so by planting early, you're going to give the hemp the opportunity to come up before a lot of those summer weed species really get going. And so most of the time your rows are shaded by the time pigweed even is coming out of the ground. 42 degrees, so would that be March, April? Oh, we target the beginning of April. Okay, Melissa, where are you? 
we're getting a little exposure to an area that I know very little about. So this field was approximately 12 to 14 feet. And so what we're doing is we're laying this down and redding it. So in order for us to be the most efficient at the processing facility that we can be, we have to allow this hemp to red. And redding is when you're breaking down that layer of pectin. And pectin I kind of describe as like nature's glue. And that's what's binding your bast fiber to the inside herd. And so we want to degrade that as much as possible. We want a heavy dew in the morning, get that wet heat in the afternoon, and that's really going to get those microbes working. So next to it here, you have an irrigation system over the top of some hemp that's brown. Have you been putting water on that? We actually have had pretty heavy dew cycles in the morning, but later this week, because we have such hot temperatures, if this starts to dry up, yes, we will turn on the pivot and water our windrows. So is this equivalent to just the plant breaking down? Is this a natural process? Absolutely. Um, it, you know, if you get a rain on it, you're fine. This is a lot different than alfalfa or brome or any of the other haze that you're putting down. We want moisture. How long will you keep it out here like this? However long it takes to ret. Um, I've seen it done as fast as five days. I've seen it take as long as 20. And how can you tell? So when you break the plant in half, um, you're going to hear, or you see how this fiber is just peeling off. Yeah, that's just the outside edge. Correct. And so when this is laying down and it's redded, if this peels off easily and in really long strands, once it's dry, that's when you know it's redded. So you see how this like sticks and it starts to break into little chunks instead of coming off in a full piece. Um, obviously this isn't redded. How will you get this picked up and into the processing facility? So we just use a dart mouth rake, uh, so a really heavy duty rake. Uh, we put this into windrows. Uh, we call our custom baler because we actually don't have any baling equipment on our farm. Uh, he'll come put it into round bales that are about 1,100 pounds and then we'll truck it to the facility. So Melissa gets hops out. She grabs this eight foot stick. She breaks it in half. And yet you've got fingernails that are absolutely beautiful. How on earth do you handle that? Well, just because I work like a man doesn't mean I have to look like one. So let me get my seatbelt on so we don't ding. This is great. Thank you very much for doing this. I love, I love this. So, so Melissa, you are deliberately going after a high profile for your farming operation. Uh, why is that? Honestly, we didn't really start out wanting to go high profile. It's just kind of naturally evolved. Um, I started sharing it on our Facebook page in 2019 just because we had so many questions within the community on what we were doing. And I just was sharing our story. I am someone that really believes that agriculture is underserved in terms of the media. And so putting out reputable, accurate information about how we're farming and creating the world's food, fiber, and fuel drives me. So the guys, um, Richard and Aaron, they, they're on board. I mean, all of us are pretty introverted. If it wasn't for the hemp, I wouldn't be on social media as much as I am. But we've been able to cultivate such amazing relationships across the world and really provide a valuable feed of information to people wanting to grow hemp, um, wanting to grow other crops and just learn about more sustainable farming. 
And one, like, to add to that real quick, if you know in the CBD industry, there was a huge crash, and there was a lot of quote-unquote experts that came in and promised the moon to all these farmers, and these farmers believed them. And that's really at the bottom of my heart. I'm here for the farmers. We're here for the farmers. We want to see this be successful. And if we're not putting out reputable information for these farmers to use, the bad players are going to be louder. Let's tell people generally where you are and uh, the potential for this crop to grow in this Kansas environment. We're at Great Bend, and we are sitting less than a mile, it appears to me, south of the uh, Arkansas River. Uh, so is this a, a suitable environment you found to grow hemp? Absolutely. So one of the things why we believe Kansas can be very uh, profitable and successful is because hemp really needs not as much water as corn, soybeans, or cotton to be successful. And so this gives hemp an opportunity to be a rotational crop to give farmers a way to diversify their farms and provide another cash crop. So you left out wheat and milo indicating that milo could remain in the rotation oh absolutely all these crops can maintain in the in the operation uh, rotation because you're just looking for a way to diversify and right now at the end of the day profitability matters and so if i can have a better return on investment for hemp than i can for wheat or for milo um, then this this crop has a chance to really get into those farmers rotations. What we're seeing though is ROI, our ROI is competitive with corn and soybeans, even on these elevated price years that you're seeing this year. And then we're beating Milo and wheat. Before I get into details on the crop, let me talk about you. Did I understand that you are a crop consultant and you have a crop consulting business yourself, Melissa? So my background is I'm actually a crop research scientist. Uh, I graduated with my bachelor's in biology and my master's in agriculture from Colorado State. And so I work with companies, I'm independent, so I work with companies from all over the world to help develop that product and eventually submit that data to the EPA. So by the time you get the product on the commercial shelf, that label that you're reading for rates and timings and harvest intervals, et cetera, I'm helping develop that. You're working with the pesticide industry. Absolutely. Pesticide, biostimulants, uh, seed varieties, genetic traits, residues, safety levels, uh, crop safety. That's all a part of what I do as a research scientist. So in turn with that, uh, we also provide crop consulting services to any farmers that grow hemp for us and our processing facility because if they're successful, we're going to be successful. How's the layout of the partnership? And I don't want to call you a farm wife and will not call you a farm wife, and you call yourself that. But in a traditional fashion, how, how much different are you than the traditional support person that a woman often is? So farm wives are amazing, amazing people. Um, I would be not a very good farm wife. Um, I cook enough to stay alive and <laughs> um, my husband knows that we pack lunches, you know, to go to the field. Thankfully, you know, I married into this farming family and they really embraced me with open arms. Um, 
Richard, my brother-in-law, handles a lot of the irrigation and the machinery side of things. Aaron handles the machinery and is focused on our grain marketing for our farm and then runs our spray rig. And then I'm the person that just fills in wherever I need to. So if I need to be in the sprayer, I run the sprayer. Uh, I typically handle all of our drills for cover crops in the fall and if we're drilling in the spring. And so I really just, I am wherever they need me to be. Who is the accountant? Oh, golly, we hired that out um, because it used to be me. And as we've continued to grow, I just knew there were better people for the job than myself. But you do read their numbers. And uh, do you discuss this equally or some of you take more of the lead on the uh, bottom line? Uh, equally, I, there's different parts of different operations. So performance crop research, at the end of the day, I get the, the last say on that because that's that's my company. Circle K Farms has been in Aaron and Richard's family for four, four generations. So while we have a group conversation about these numbers, because all three of our companies interlaps quite a bit, um, the boys have the say on the farm, I have the say on the research facility, and then South Bend Industrial Hemp is divided evenly between the three of us. So we'll just take a vote. Uh, we grow around 300 acres of hemp. Uh, the rest is divided between corn, soy, uh, wheat. We did a little bit of Milo this year. One of the things in our earlier reading of what you've been doing and your discussion with me has been more uh, disappointment and failure in hemp than success. Am I inaccurate in that or is it just that's the learning curve you had and you don't learn by doing it right, you learn by the mistakes that you or others make? Honestly, I would say we were more successful than most. Um, one thing that I think makes our group very unique is we're willing to pivot. And so in 2019, when our CBD buyer fell out, just like a lot of farmers across the United States, we pivoted and created our own product line. Um, in 2020, when our buyer backed out on our fiber operation, our fiber field grow, uh, we came to a crossroads and we sat down together and decided either A, we needed to open a fiber processing facility and be the solution to our problem because we had farmers coming to us saying, man, we've watched you for two years now. We would grow if we had a place to take it. And then we had manufacturers calling us because they were following our social media saying, where are you taking this to be processed? We want to buy it. So we either needed to get out of the hemp industry because the future was really uncertain or we needed to create our own destiny and that's what we did. So you've jumped in here in 2022 with both feet. What type of uh, processing operation do you have beyond the growing of the field hemp? Honestly, I think we've been uh, a little more than two feet in for quite a while. I would say eyeball deep because um, we're really we're really all in on this hemp and the amount of energy that we spend on educating and getting farmers um, just educated about the crop. But at the end of 2020, we put a down payment on our processing machine. Uh, we chose a machine out of the United States. Right now, there's three main machines that you can purchase. One is out of France, one is out of Canada, and one is out of Monta Vista, Colorado. We love supporting America. We love supporting the American economy. And so keeping it as close to home was really important to us. It sounds like this is a rather sophisticated and expensive machine. It's expensive, not as expensive as the French or the Canadian machine, but
but it's definitely going to cost you a pretty penny. What does it do? So what it does, when these farmers come to us with hemp, it is in round bales. So think of your normal hay operation. So you swath it, you rake it, you bale it. Our job at the processing facility is to break it into its two main pieces, which are bast fiber and herd, which is the inside woody substance of the plant. Spell a couple of words for me there. Yeah, bast fiber, B-A-S-T, and then fiber, F-I-B-E-R, and then herd is H-U-R-D. One thing, if you're a manufacturer that wants either one of these products, you want it 99% free of whatever that pro other product is. So. For our herd, you know, that's going to be used for natural building, which is hempcrete, which is very, very hot topic right now. Um, insulation, bioplastics, uh, or LCM, so loss control material in oil fields. Those are all applicable of bedding in animals, whether that be small pets or large animal bedding. That's going to be your home for herd. Fast fiber is going to be, you know, your textiles, your ropes, your just different options like that. Well, we've just gone through the uh, processing facility here for South Bend Industrial Hemp Processing. I find it interesting. Tell me where the facility is and what the building used to be. So this building actually used to be an old Coca-Cola distribution center. And when they closed the distribution center, the guy that won the lottery from Great Bend actually purchased the building and was using it for storage. And he actually did not want the building anymore, and that's how we picked it up. He really won a lottery? Literally won the lottery. Hmm. And also went broke. We have extensively talked, because we've got plenty of tractor time, uh, how we would spend our lottery winnings if we ever got that. <laughs> <laughs> the facility you have has uh, just the building as the shell around it and other than storage there's not a lot in there but what you have in there is critical isn't it to what you do absolutely you know Aaron actually found this building and when he first brought it to Richard and I's attention we were like what are we gonna do with 13,000 square feet and as you saw when you were in there today like we're out of room um, in a perfect world, we would have a staging area for the bales, so we would have another basically hay shed where we would keep bales that are getting ready to go into the decorticator, um, and we would probably have a finished warehouse for our final product. But right now, thankfully, we just as soon as the finished product's done, we call the trucks, we get it out of the facility. This is on the grounds where the old Great Bend Airport is. It used to be a three-runway bomber base and now just has one active runway left, but it's an industrial park, and that could give you some other incentives or give other people other incentives to perhaps build next to you. Absolutely, and the state of Kansas has been very transparent about that. If you talk to the Department of Commerce, uh, Mar Marla Canefield is actually from Great Bend and went to school with Aaron and Richard. So mm -hmm. understanding the incentives that Kansas has, understanding the incentives that Great Bend is willing to offer companies that are coming in, there's opportunities out there. Tell me about input output uh can you talk volume uh and employees and the basis of uh running this does this run uh 365 our goal is to have this facility running 24 hours a day 365 days a year um, currently we're running 16 and 6 uh, so we're getting there 
in order for us to be able to run at 24-7, we need to make sure we have the acres in to support that. So this year we contracted 2,000 acres to help supply the processing facility. It will be interesting to see if we, what we have come in, we'll know everything within the next 60 days because farmers are harvesting now. They will bring in their truckloads of bales. We will get a tonnage. And then from there, we'll know exactly how many days and weeks we can run with the current supply that we have. Does the material need to be covered after it's baled or can the round bales exist outside? They can exist outside. So if we see moisture coming, we'll pull in the number of bales we need to run for the week. Uh, but otherwise, no, they're all stored outside. Number of employees uh, in the plant? So we run two shifts of three people. So we have six employees right now. Which ones would you like to either speed up or change? I'd like to speed up all of them, uh, you know, because then we can just service more customers and have a higher volume. But again, that means we need to do our job on the farming standpoint of getting them more product to run. So I have no doubt that Dodge will continue to speed up. Uh, all we have to do is make sure that we've got the right equipment in his hands in order for him to do that. You could have multiples of everything in there and double or triple this. So that's one of the reasons we went with this machine is because the supporting equipment you saw of like the stick cleaner and the sorter and et cetera, that's not at maximum capacity yet. So what we would need to do is really add another decorticator, extend that belly auger, and then boom, we've doubled our capacity by adding only one more machine. Tell me about the customers as much as you wish on um, how you find them and what they're doing with this product. Honestly, they find us. Um, I just We spend zero dollars on advertising except for our radio show that we do once a month uh, called Ask the Expert on KVG uh, Eagle Radio. And really, we're not looking for customers there. We're just using it as an educational tool. So social media, people have found us. Word of mouth, people have found us. And that's how we create our clients. You had um, some different grades of material in there. Which of the grades best at this time, or at least the most marketable at this time, and could that change? Both sizes of herd, the medium and the fines, are extremely marketable. We have a wait list for both. The fiber is marketable, but just less requests at this time. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about the fiber you have left, or just leave it alone? Um, that fiber, you know, we're willing to work with anybody that wants to take our product as is. It's approximately 70% clean. Um, most of our manufacturers are asking for 90% clean or better. So like I said, we need to get that fiber cleaner in. Or we're willing to sell that a heck of a deal if people are if they have their own fiber cleaner and just want the volume of product that we have because we have about 300,000 pounds. Has K-State in their ag engineering or any other area... Uh, come to you or have you gone to them or Fort Hayes State and talked to them about you know what could you figure out that this product could become value-added? You know there's a group out of Dodge City uh, that is doing work with the engineering program up at K-State for the herd and the hempcrete side of things but no I don't believe anybody's approached them about the fiber stuff at this time. Have you ever seen a house that's built out of hempcrete? Oh, absolutely. Um, we supply builders all over the country. We've shipped as far as Hawaii um, and seen hemp houses go up there. So it's a pretty cool process to see and, you know, jump on our Facebook page and you can see build updates from our builders. Can you tell me 
briefly for our radio audience how it comes together? Uh, the hempcrete? Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're going to take our herd and you're going to mix it with lime and water and from there they pour it into slip forms. They tamp it down or some people use like a blow-in insulation tool and they'll blow that herd in, let it sit, and then move on to the next section of the wall in a nutshell. What are its attributes that are different than concrete? Hemcrete has a, a very high R value as well as being mold proof, bug proof, and fireproof. Um, we've had Farm Bureau, we've had the president of Farm Bureau come out. Um, Farm Bureau actually offered the first hemp commercial policy for our processing facility. That took a lot of conversations, a lot of education, a lot of them touring our facility for them to understand that this is an industrial product. This is not uh, what most people associate hemp with, uh, which is marijuana. They would insure a home that's built with this, just like it was concrete. Yes. We work really hard to again continue to get those those large builders or you know those large insurance companies, those people that are really going to make an impact in changing this from a, a community commercial standpoint. Well, you hit on an area which is real that we don't think about. You have to have the infrastructure buy into it. You have to have the supporting industries buy into it. If it's a, only a core group, the people they have to go to to protect themselves or to get their services may not want to be a part of it. They don't understand it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, think of the grain side of things. What's wild to me is you can feed your child hemp parts which is from the inside of a hemp grain. You can go to Dillon's or Walmart or anywhere right now, Amazon, and buy a bag of that. You can't feed your cow hemp hearts because they consider that unsafe. There's a lot of interesting legislation that's currently out there and laws that are really inhibiting the hemp industry. If your growers are gonna be able to do this right, what kind of inputs do they need? And are all those inputs currently approved for their use? So in order for you to grow a successful hemp crop, really think of your corn crop. So you're going to need approximately the same amount of nitrogen, um, phosphorus, and potassium. Water, if you have it as irrigation, would be great. If not, you know, Mother Nature will provide, hopefully. And then in terms of herbicides, you know, there's really not an option for you to use that once the crop is up. So you've really got to be creative and it's really forced us to be better farmers and, and look at cover crops and look at planting timing and really hone in on what works for our area. And right now for you to submit a label to the EPA, it's $750,000. And if there's really only 51,000 acres of hemp in the United States, if every single farmer use that product, it's still not going to be a good return for that chemical company. Uh, it's not going to be a quick enough return. And you say that not just as an average person, but as a researcher, a person who you make much of your livelihood knowing about the ag chemical industry. Oh, absolutely. You know, I would love to be wrong and tell you that some company is going to get in. I would love to see like a smaller company, a smaller chemical company get that label approval. Um, because I think that'll really push them to the forefront because hemp farmers are looking for an answer and there's a lot of hemp, potential hemp farmers that aren't getting in because they don't have that safety net of a herbicide to use. So we'll see where the industry grows, but I would love to see that as an option. My guest has been Melissa Nelson, a very active crop farmer, crop researcher, and social media contributor.
If you want to see pictures and video and all kinds of ways to exhibit this crop, go to her Facebook page. It's South Bend Industrial Hemp. The website is southbendindustrialhemp.com and on Instagram, South Bend Hemp. Truly, Melissa knows how to use social media. Just go through some of the postings to see what I'm talking about. We also went into the air-conditioned laboratory area alongside the shop on a hot morning, and Melissa set up all the items she shows to tour groups and talked through some of them for me. These are all made with hemp. Uh, when we talk about the hemp and the different products that can be made from the hemp, it's really easy to categorize it into three main parts. And so part one is the hemp seed or the hemp grain. So grain is what we're taking off the top of the plant. Um, it's seeds, and these seeds actually have over 25% oil content in them. So you can actually cold press and press out the oil, which is going to be used for cosmetic products, um, cooking, um, care, like personal care lines. Hemp seed oil is great for that, lotions, etc. Another option that you can do for the seed as well is you can actually de-hull that seed and break it open, which is very similar to um, like sunflower seeds when you pull off that outer hull. And you can actually get a soft um, inside, it's like a, it's called a hemp heart, but it tastes, it's like a nutty soft nut that is just very similar to the inside of a sunflower seed. So those are considered superfood. For three tablespoons of hemp hearts, you get 12 grams of fat, 10 grams of protein with only five carbs. So very popular within the keto community. All right, so the next part that we talk about is the bast fiber, which you know, you've heard us talking about that as we went through the field. You've heard how we broke it down into those separate parts at our processing facility. So now what can we do with that bast fiber? So the bast fiber goes from an unclean state, which means it's coming straight out of the machine. It hasn't been degummed, um, which is what you take off like the waxy natural substance around the fiber. And so once you degum it, you actually have a clean bast fiber and it also runs through a large comber. So think of like a large industrial size hairbrush is essentially what they're doing is they're opening up the fibers in this uh, bast fiber. From there, it's head to spinners. And so this is actually a hemp um, wool blend from a company called Shemp down in Florida. Um, this is also a hemp t-shirt from a grain. This is a, a grain focused company, but they make all their products out of hemp. Um, this is a hemp towel from Hemptopia. Uh, probably one of the biggest hemp brands in the market right now is Patagonia here in the United States. And they, again, that's all made from, from hemp fabric. So that's what we're seeing out of hemp. Um, I, the fiber also has rope. Uh, you can make rope. I don't have any hemp rope in any of our products, but uh, someday I will acquire that with all of my, my stuff. So the last piece of this puzzle that we have is the herd. And so the herd, as you know, comes out of our machine. And from there, it can be used from a variety of products. So here we have hemp herd, uh, hemp crete. So hemp crete, is a mixture of lime, water, and then our herd. And then it creates a hard substance with a very high R value that is also mold proof, uh, bug proof, as well as fireproof. 
And then this specific uh, sample that I have here, the builder actually put a natural plaster over the top and that is gonna seal that herd on the inside and really help it in terms of longevity. While hempcrete is new in the United States, it is not new in France and over in Europe. They've been building with this for centuries and it holds up. You can also see they have things called hemp wood. Hemp wood is basically hemp herd compressed down into a resin. And from there you can make spoons, you can make cutting boards, high-end cabinets, coffee tables, um, any flooring that can all be made from hemp herd. Another thing, once you take that herd, you can micronize it, which basically is breaking it down into sub 200 micron. And microns are basically screens, so it's how small that particle is that's passing through. And so we actually send these to plastic companies for them to make water bottles, TVs, you know, all the plastic products that you use today can be replaced or at least substituted partially with hemp. 3D printers are also util utilizing that micronized herd. Uh, you can see these sunglasses here or these earrings. These are all done by a 3D printer. There are houses being made from 3D printing, um, also made from hemp. And then this is actually that biofilament that is used uh, in the 3D printers. Last but not least, we have the dust that is collected uh, from our processing machine. And this dust is actually sent to ceramic tiling companies and they can utilize this as well. So in a nutshell, that is just the tip of the iceberg of what products can be made. Uh, we've seen everything from diapers to dish rags to, if you name it, people are trying to put hemp in it. In the next episode, we'll hear from the two men in this farming operation, husband Aaron and brother-in-law Richard. Thanks for listening. If you have any response to this podcast, send an email to kenroot at gmail.com, K-E-N-R-O-O-T, at gmail.com. I'd ask you to subscribe to this podcast so the next issue of Better Than Nothing will pop up and notify you as soon as I get it finished. If you have subjects you'd like explored by me, I'd appreciate hearing about them as well. As I am now 73 years old, I've decided I'm going to have two kinds of days, good days and great ones. I'll see you next time.